Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, we are delighted to talk with Dr. Rebecca Rags-Sykes. She's a researcher, science communicator, trailblazer, and author of the new book, Kindred, Neanderthal Life, Love, Death, and Art. And that's right. It means it's November. So it's time for Neanderthal. Yeah. So the book is already out in the UK and comes out in the States on October 27th. So when this episode airs, it should be available for you to purchase anywhere fine books are sold. And it is a beautiful book. And if you are at all interested in everything known about Neanderthals and how they lived, I can't recommend it enough. If you've spent much time, any time at all, listening to The Dirt, you'll know how much Amber and I love to think and talk about Neanderthals. So we are so excited to have Becky on the show. So thank you, Becky, for coming on. Thank you very much for having me and for saying lovely things about my book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is, it really is a lovely book. We were not paid in any way to say those things. (laughs) Well, it's, it's really nice to, I guess, to, to see how much people are not only sort of responding in reviews and things but just you know having people tweet how excited they are to see it and then how much they sort of take from the archaeology but also the thing that was scary to do in writing this book was to put like creative writing in and narratives Mm -hmm. and poems and you know all personal kind of kind of stuff that's very non-academic-y and yet that you know that really seems to be touching people as well so I'm just so thrilled at at how how it's going (laughs) yeah yeah well we have a combination of things to talk to you about we've got some questions about your your own history about the book but we'd also like to ask you about some of the major misconceptions about Neanderthals that research of the past decade or two has really started to overturn so there's so 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 much evidence featured in Kindred that might go against expectations or understanding of Neanderthal life and behavior so hopefully you can walk us through some of that yeah, um, yeah sure. I couldn't believe how how packed with research this book was. <laughs> yeah. Your, your bibliography is in a separate place. It's it's on your website. Yeah, I, I couldn't oh, I mean it was already um a lot longer than uh initially envisaged and so I I just couldn't sort of get a massive you know, reference section in as well because it was already yeah, over be a five hundred page. page. Book. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> it would have just I didn't want to intimidate people, you know, because I know so many, so many people who have nothing to do with archaeology professionally and who do not regard themselves as like, oh, I'm an intellectual, they are still fascinated by deep prehistory. And I didn't want to put people off with a book that smelled scholarly. You know, I wanted to kind of <laughs> I guess, um, sort of stealth that in, um, you know, and, you know, if, if people want references, then they are available, but I didn't want to kind of make it that feeling of, of a book. I wanted it to be completely accessible, but, you know, stuffed with, with information, but not, not in a way that kind of befuddles people who are just not used to reading a heavy book like that, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, a, does. it definitely does that. It's a brilliant solution to that. Um, <laughs> I also just really hate doing references to those. <laughs> show me someone who likes doing them and I will show you someone who needs a hobby. <laughs> well, they've got one, Anna. Yeah, that's true. Never mind. More power to them. Well, before we get into any more about sort of the like the meat of this book, um, mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit about you. Uh, So something that our listeners love hearing and that we love hearing is about the educational trajectory of our guests. And so how did you first get interested in archaeology and what brought you to Neanderthals? I guess I'd say I'm one of those sort of people who talk about having a childhood where they were 
fiddling around in the dirt, you know, um, digging in their back garden, finding bits of pottery. I lived in London, so I found, you know, Victorian trash. But also my family Hmm. took me on a lot of holidays and I was really into nature and I still am and so I was also one of those children that would find dead things and be quite happy to poke them and take things home you know bones in my pocket and you know that that's common to a lot of archaeologists I think I think it's it's a fascination not only with time but sort of materiality um and so I can't really sort of say oh this was the moment I knew because I guess I was always really into the past and and yeah thinking about that but um I think I I had a lot of holidays in the UK with with my family when we would um go to historic properties like National Trust here you know it's um mm-hmm. it's the the UK's biggest heritage body and and I like to you know imagine myself living in a castle and things like this but I didn't really I guess engage with deep deep prehistory or anything for quite a while but I I do remember it um at secondary school so yeah high school I don't know I was probably about 12 or 13 when we had to choose a subject for an essay and um see the Iceman was in the news and Ah. that completely grabbed me you know that sort of the immediacy of it and I think I understood you know how astonishing it was to have all those organic objects because I mean his body was one thing but it was the stuff with him as well and that was like wow so I wrote my my nerdy essay about it see I don't know what everyone else wrote theirs about but it wasn't him um and yeah and then I guess I got um a bit older and I do have to give shouts out to Jean Owl um <laughs> um yeah you know the clan of the cave bear and stuff I read that about the same age a bit older probably 13 14 and I was completely you know bowled over by her descriptions of the Pleistocene world um the the level of detail she went to in not only the the behavior of of people at that time including Neanderthals but just describing the land the plants the process of foraging how you memorize you know botanical knowledge different kinds of stonework I did not understand what she meant by striking platform (laughs) That was very confusing. Um, took me years to quite, you know, work out what that was about. But but I loved that sort of the detail and the reconstructions and just this idea of bringing that world to life. I, I was really into that. So that was kind of there. And and then, yeah, when we, we travelled, you know, down into into France um, for family holidays and, and I guess when I really started going and seeing caves and going to the museums and things and, I do remember being sort of really mesmerised by watching flint napping videos in a museum. It might have been the, the museum for Altamira or somewhere. And I was like having to be called back out, you know, to, to leave. Because <laughs> I was watching this video of somebody. It wasn't even a person. It was like, you know, just their lap. And they had the skin on their lap and they were napping. And I was just like, wow, this is amazing. And um, yeah, so I guess it kind of just coalesced over time and, and then I chose to go to, to university, although um, although there did used to be the option in the UK of doing archaeology, you know, at school, the exam boards basically, you know, mostly stopped offering it. So the nearest I could get to it in my school, which was a, a London, just a normal mixed London school and not like a private school or anything, was to do English literature, French and ancient history. So, you know, I, I, I got my history as old as I could, <laughs> um, <laughs> although it was just classical Athens. But, you know, I actually really loved that too. Um, and, and then I went to university and just did like straight archaeology BA. But I chose to go to Bristol in, in significant part because I knew they had a rock art course and I was already, you know, really interested in, in, yeah, in doing that kind of thing. So it kind of evolved from then on. And, um, and then I went to uh, Southampton, the Centre for Archaeology of Human Origins, and did a master's there, which was absolutely brilliant because they have a really, really cool teaching collection. It's, um, it's like an experimental napping collection that they've had made um and they've also created like a fake archive to go with it so it's like you have all the lithics in a load of drawers and then you have the archive that they give you and you have to kind of basically assess that collection after you've been taught how to do lithic analysis so that was it was it was really really cool sort of experience um 
And yeah, and also I had fantastic supervisors. I had um, John McNabb and Clive Gamble and their teaching was absolutely, you know, inspiring. And um, and that point, I really started to gravitate towards Neanderthals, I think, um, partly because I don't know, all those tiny blades in the upper Paleolithic, they scare me a bit. <laughs> um, I mean, I love the upper Paleolithic. It's amazing. But um, I, don't, I, I, I kind of, I like the middle Paleolithic. It's a bit more, I don't know. Friendly? Um, I feel like I know where I am with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and I, I like the challenge as well of, you know, like you go back in time, you have less material to deal with generally and less variety of materials. And, and it forces you to, be a bit more creative in your inferences um you know well while not making stuff up um but you know try and get your mind to move between things just like Clive Gamble says you know tacking between different different realms of evidence and so I think that that's also why I liked the idea of doing Neanderthals um and then I did my PhD um at Sheffield and that was on the later Neanderthal archaeology of Britain, which um, is is not exactly <laughs> abundant, um, you know what what we have left because it was mostly discovered by um, Victorians and in the early twentieth century, and and they were, you know, quite aggressive in their in their excavation mm. techniques. So mm. um, yeah, I mean, mm. I think it, it was genuinely never a large sort of record but um what was left was a lot less after they'd been <laughs> at it um but I did get to study um the assemblage from Linford Quarry which was only excavated um in the early 2000s and that is a gorgeous gorgeous assemblage that's around uh 55,000 years old something like that um cool and that's I know from nothing about that oh it's awesome it's there's an open access publication for it actually English uh, heritage as it was then um funded that so if you look up like Linford Quarry Neanderthals Among Mammoths or something like that um it is uh, available as a pdf and that assemblage um is you know represents what is missing it's got all the the tiny flakes that the victorians always chucked away and and it's also got like about 50 absolutely gorgeous bifaces and um it's from the east of england um in a paleo channel context and so what would have actually just been a continuation of the channel plane between what were then just the highlands um of britain and into the continent further eastwards but because is that that's Doggerland? Yes, exactly. Um, so it would have just graded into Doggerland because um, the east of Britain is very flat um, and sort of quite close down to sea level um, in East Anglia, this, this region. Um, and because these objects were probably napped and left on the on the river banks of like a little like a little channel off a larger river like an oxbow basically an abandoned organic mm -hmm. channel um <clears throat> but then they collapsed in um they ended up preserved in this organic channel in loads of like really black sediment and so the artifacts themselves some of them are stained this amazing like black color on top of the mm. natural black brandon flint from the, from the area so they're absolutely mm, stunning like to look at ultra black oh yeah they're so pretty and and yeah i mean apart from the they look gorgeous they you know that that assemblage was really important to understand sort of the the technological choices that that we you know struggle to see from a lot of other assemblages in britain so and um, so my phd basically tried to bring together sort of the slightly scabby stuff from caves um, that was dug a long time ago, although it's still interesting because it's often made from non-flint stuff like quartzite, um, and mm -hmm. then assess that with the modern excavated material and take a landscape perspective and look at how Neanderthals were sort of organising themselves um, and, you know, what kind of lithics were they moving and what choices were they making. So that was my PhD. After I finished my PhD, um, like a, a lot of people then and now, um, so I finished in 2010, uh, well, 2009, and then I graduated 2010. Um, I, you know, just faced a really, really difficult job and funding situation and didn't really get anything for a couple of years. I was working with projects, but not funded. So I was working on the um, the project around uh, La Cote de Saint-Brelard in Jersey, um, that was really cool, but again, I couldn't get funding for it. And then I kind of made a last ditch attempt and applied for a uh, Marie Curie uh, fellowship, which mm -hmm. it's a European funded 
um, system, basically, where as postdocs or PhDs, actually, you are encouraged to move to a different country where you've not lived before um, to basically train in something new and get experience of working in different lab and a different culture. And um, it's great. They, they pay you a really decent salary to encourage you to, to move, you know, to uproot your life and, and go over there for a few years. Um, so I did apply for that and I didn't get it. Um and so I was like, oh, okay, I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> and that was in 2012. And then a few months later, I found out that I had only been about six people down on the reserve list. And because it's thousands of students or and, and postdocs across Europe, it only took six people above me to drop out and sort of, you know, take another grant or they couldn't do it or whatever. And so I was offered it unexpectedly um and wow yeah I know it was like oh well okay suddenly I am going to France <laughs> um and yeah so I, w- I went there and that ran between uh 2013 to 2015 and um that was a really cool experience I got to work at the at the Passea laboratory in uh, University of Bordeaux and you know meet loads mm-hmm. of fantastic researchers um and I did training in uh, sort of flint identification and things like this and I had a site um, that I was working on as part of a large uh, long-term landscape project in the southeast of France so not the southwest which is like you know Neanderthal Mecca in most people's eyes and um, like the Perigord and the Dordogne this is in the southeast in the Massif Central Mountains um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> where there were Neanderthals as well um, but they were using generally volcanic rocks because there's not a lot of flint there and um, the material I was interested in was uh, silcrete which is a silicious rock just like flint it's um, silica based um, but it forms in different ways and as part of this really long-term project with different Neanderthal sites and sites of sort of later prehistoric age as well, they'd identified this particular silcrete was being used in loads of sites in the region and they wanted to find out uh, where it came from and they knew the hill where it was, but there had never been sort of a, a survey or an excavation actually identifying a quarry. And so we did actually find that Um in the the first year that we did field work up there, we sort of stripped the top of the hill after finding nothing down, and suddenly there was you know just gazillions of lithics um, <laughs> revealed, and and then I had like a year and a half to try and <laughs> work out what was going on in this quarry, <laughs> which was yeah pretty pretty big. <laughs> so I would I would advise people not to try and um, take on a quarry for a two year postdoc, but. Um, <laughs> Seems like a lot. Yeah, I, I sampled. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I spent a lot of time in the Passio Lab as well at Bordeaux and got trapped in the elevator in that building. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> 45 minutes. Yeah. Oh, no. I genuinely, I had a flight that weekend and genuinely thought, because it was Friday at about 5 p.m., Everyone had left because it was France. Yes, and everyone. Nobody stayed. Just kind of <laughs> toodles off early on the weekend, and I just I assumed like, oh, I live here now. <laughs> this is this is where I am forever. Uh, I got out though. Yeah, okay. the new building there is was sad. I mean, they've they've just replaced all the buildings. Yes, they moved to a new building. Um, so they're all you know very modern and, and everything now. But yeah, it was fr- summers mm. were not very nice. To, you know, with the south facing office with no aircon and massive glass windows <laughs> it was a bit much yeah you're working in a greenhouse yeah so sweaty yep okay so neanderthals yes let's get into them when i first started learning about neanderthals one of the first things that you're taught is their anatomy and how it differs from that of homo sapiens and a lot of what i learned was couched in terms of most of those physical traits are cold adaptations. So they are, in general, Neanderthals are bulkier, more robust, and a bit more compact than Homo sapiens. And they've got this big nasal aperture. So the the nose hole, to put it in familiar terms. But I sort of knew that there was there was pushback against this idea of all these things being cold adaptations. But the way you present it in Kindred is a really compelling sort of alternative argument. So can you talk us through some of that? Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's tricky because with, with Neanderthals, when you're trying to write about them, whatever it is, you are 
coming up against the variety of uh, people's sort of existing levels of understanding and knowledge about them. So if people ask me generally, oh, you know, were Neanderthals really different to us physically? Well, I'll say, well, no, they weren't. They were super similar to us, um, you know, but that's on a massive evolutionary timescale. And when you look at their bodies um, and you directly compare every bone, yeah, there are a lot of differences. And it's the same thing with explaining why their anatomy is different two hours. So um, I wanted to, in the book, I guess, undercut some of the notions that Neanderthals were hyper-Arctic specialists, because that's the takeaway that people generally have about them. Most people believe that Neanderthals were basically just living in like polar deserts, and that was it. And that's not Which is odd, because Homo sapiens sites are farther north than... Neanderthal sites, but I guess that's because of the the ice sheets retreating. Yeah, and I mean the chronology is also different. I mean Neanderthals were in the northern hemisphere for you know hundreds of thousands of years longer than we were, but even even so, I think um, what I was trying to do in the book is basically say yes, um, there probably is um, you know a, a thermal thing going on. You know there definitely is, but there's other things at play as well um, that maybe emerging from the more sophisticated um, sort of biological and biomechanics um, analysis that people have been doing that are sort of saying that's not the only story um, about why their bodies look different. The, the, the thing that's emerging, I think, is that their bodies were also um, just really finely tuned to really intensive lifestyles you know full-on hunter-gatherer um activity over probably very um varied terrain it looks like they were you know they weren't just sticking on flat plains and stuff they were active in um you know mountains and things like this as well but i think that the picture that we get is that they were just intensely active and combined with living during colder periods which does affect how your body sort of responds at a cellular level Intensive activity and high metabolic sort of um, requirements also can sort of change the robustness of your bones. So I think um, what I wanted to do is basically sort of just show people that there's there's a meshing of different factors at play. And also I wanted to, well, I mean, I, I hope I managed to sort of get the point across that Neanderthals aren't weird. Um, you know, they're not sort of... <laughs> weirdo hominins that went off and and turned odd they're just as odd as we are you know and we both shared a common ancestor and we went off on our trajectory and became weird in our own way and and they went off and became weird in their way so um you know we shouldn't be comparing ourselves with them as if we are a default Mm -hmm. you know um in fact some of the the aspects of of um sort of what you would call primitive which simply means did our common ancestor share that you know they have some of those we don't we have some and they don't so um it's 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 more about i guess the complexity of of how you end up as a as a body system responding to things and also we shouldn't forget that not everything needs to have you know a oh here's the the gesso story reason for why this this is like this there's no kind of and this made them super good at x you know there doesn't always need to be an explanation like that for biology um Mm. much of the time that there does seem to be one but sometimes some of the the idiosyncrasies in anatomy and things just sort of are neutral um shifts that that have not affected you know positively or negatively and they've just hung around Mm -hmm. yeah all right thank you yeah, that's great. So that's a great way to, to think about that. Thank you. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com.
Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. So let's move on to a another misconception and this one around the Neanderthal diet. So longtime listeners of our show will have can probably think of several occasions on which we've talked about <laughs> evidence that we have for Neanderthal diet. Um, and, and so it's not monolithic and it definitely wasn't all meat. So what types of things would Neanderthals have eaten in the extremely diverse landscapes that they inhabited? The broadness of their world is the key really to understanding how diverse their diets actually were because Neanderthals, they lived from a, from around um, somewhere around 400,000, 350 through to about 40,000 years ago is when we see them basically disappear from the fossil record. And that covers multiple different climate cycles. So they didn't live just through one ice age. You know, the Pleistocene is, is, um, is a massively long period and it covers multiple cold phases followed by interglacial warm phases. Um, so they lived through many of those. And each time um, they were living in, um, each time it got warm, they were living in environments not too similar to now and sometimes even warmer. So, you know, they were just as much woodland hominins um you know oak beech woodland hominins as they were people who lived on steppe tundra and then you have to add to that the geographical range um where you know they were living between wales and into central asia and siberia um, and that covers an enormous sort of span of of space and of different kinds of topographies. And then you also have the the fact that, you know, we, we forget that they basically had beaches and, and you know, the coasts and wetlands, um, as well as grasslands and forests and mountains. So they had the, an entire range of everything that Western Eurasia has to offer, basically. Right. Um, and what has changed, I think, is that our expectations for what we might see them eating have shifted as the archaeological um, methods that we use have become more sophisticated and we can actually sort of pull out more information from, from the dirt, from, from bones and things. We've got a lot better at actually seeing the diversity. And so what we can sort of say quite confidently now is that, yeah, sure, Neanderthals were not sort of scavengers waiting around on on other carnivores kills they were top predators in whatever environment they were in um but that could range from taking truly you know big megafauna and we have pretty decent evidence now that they were able to take on mammoth including um infant mammoths and it's quite hard to get baby elephants um you know by accident you're not going to stumble across that so um i think the the level of mammoth that is there in in the diet does imply some hunting um and also you know woolly rhinoceros and then the interglacial equivalents of those elephants and forest rhino and then down through to medium sized game um deer red deer they were hunting uh, fallow deer and even smaller things um the, the one of the big shifts has been from the, the notion that they were just going after massive herd animals, basically. Um, and what we see instead is that they were definitely taking those, whatever, you know, the ecology was around them, they were targeting the best of it. So in situations where there's mostly big herd animals, they mostly went for that. Um, in more diverse environments or forests, um, they had some big game, but we start to see a little bit more small games so sometimes they're after rabbits birds um the evidence for fresh fish is quite small but in the sites where we have it it's you know it's pretty suggestive and we certainly can see that they were quite happy 
as coastal foragers. You know, they were not specialised, you know, um, beach dwellers and, and, you know, only living off fish or anything like that. But they they were encompassing that environment um, as part of a larger adaptation in, in whatever region they were comfortable in. And, and you know, they, they were perfectly okay to eat tortoises in the Mediterranean because they're easy to catch. And uh, we even hmm. have evidence um, from from at least one site that they may have been overhunting the tortoises as well. Um, oh. Oh. So, <laughs> yeah, so I think the, the diversity in, in what they hunted is, is really shifted. Uh, but also plants have become quite central, I think, to, to how we think about Neanderthal diet. Obviously, again, that's going to vary if, if you're living say 70,000 years ago in the middle of France when it's pretty damn cold you know this is the middle of um a glaciation there it does appear there were a few Neanderthals around now and then but it was mostly depopulated um but you're mostly going to be hunting but even when you look at other um climatic contexts say for example slightly less cold um situations but it's still steppe steppe tundra so not you know really really cold more like siberia today um we should probably be assuming that the evidence we see in warmer periods or in the mediterranean for use of plants including you know nuts fruits uh, legumes even grain that that to a lesser extent was going on during slightly cooler periods because we can see from indigenous northern hemisphere cultures um, the range of plants that they know about that are edible in those environments um, but that in Europe most people have forgotten about um, you know so I think those those possibilities were definitely there and, and there are you know sort of strange ones like from um, Belgium during a a reasonably cold-ish period. It wasn't super warm. Uh, We've got evidence for an Neanderthal eating water lily root, um, you know, which Hmm. is unexpected, but it is perfectly edible. And it also then, you know, you've got to suddenly think, well, that's not something that you just find by accident. That's something you have actively foraged for. And, and, uh, you know, really, given what we know about their technological interest in Um, plant materials from the fact that they had wooden uh, spears and we know they were selecting for wood species and even the parts of the tree based on the quality no reason why they wouldn't have been just as interested in you know the nutritional properties of plants as well right wow (laughs) wow that's just (laughs) letting it all sort of like sink in and it's just like no this is truly diverse and like and like um in your response you keep introducing new axes along which it can be diverse and so sorry <laughs> no, no that's good no it's just it's good to think about i think yeah. I mean, that's the, the thing i think that's what's that's what i've really tried to do in the book is to take the totality of the evidence and actually try and make connections between them you know between those yeah. different areas that we know about you know like what do what does our knowledge about technology say about their understanding of material mm-hmm. properties and then say, well, hang on, why can we not think about food in 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 this this way of, of Neanderthals being interested in quality and efficiency? Well, of course they would have been interested in plants and, and they would have been experimenting. Um, and then you can say, oh, well, actually we know now from genetics that they could, they had like a bitter taste receptor and it was slightly different to our one. So they could actually perhaps have, um, have dealt with uh, bitter tastes um, even better than us, which might have made them more okay with with sampling different different kinds of foods, and and then that makes me think, you know, that's exactly what Gene Owl has going on in in the kind of the cave there. Yeah. That's how they that's how they learn about foods. They take tiny nibbles, and you know. So I guess I've tried to sort of just bring connections between all the because the the, the amount of evidence we have about Neanderthals is so stupendous now mm-hmm. that it's impossible i think for most people who are not in that field never mind in archaeology to understand quite you know what 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 we're all doing um mm-hmm. and for people who you know who are not archaeologists it's that context that they're lacking even though the neanderthal discoveries are in the news all the time right. but people don't have that Constantly. basic contextual understanding and knowledge um, to really sort of place those discoveries into a picture that makes sense to them. Um, so that's what I was wanting to do, really, um, and bring, you know, bring things together. And I mean, 
you know, it's it's definitive in that sense. Obviously, the evidence is going to change. Right. <laughs> um, we're going to find more stuff. Um, but I, I kind of wanted to kind of to I wanted to to give people a sense of this is where we are right now with what we know and what we understand and what we can try and uh, perceive as potentialities based on the evidence we've got. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things the book really does just incredibly well is uh, deal with the scale and interconnectedness of the Neanderthal world. So the idea that they were moving through the landscape, they were familiar with their landscape, they're likely would have been places that they knew from memory and over generations would revisit. And and they were capable of traveling fairly long distances. And so the Neanderthal world isn't limited to these sites that exist in a vacuum. They were this species that had their own full ecology and that really occupied this tremendously diverse series of landscapes. And I've said it earlier in this interview, but the volume of stuff that you bring into this book is wild. Um, I was trying to find it in the book, but there is a little part where you talk about footprints Mm. on the upper level of a coastal cave site and how the footprints based on measurements probably belonged to a group of kids. Yeah. And uh, that when I I, I lost it, I didn't write that on the page foolishly, but when it was a very evocative thing to think about socially, how groups can break apart and come back together and, and, and group and social dynamics are fluid. Yeah. And there is this big sense of, of fluidity throughout the book of, of moving and carrying things and going to resources and bringing resources around and within the landscape. Um, that is really, really interesting to think about. That yeah. I, loved. I mean, I think that's, that's the power of where we are now in the material and the record that we have um we are able to make those connections um you know and like you say you know each site previously might have just kind of been regarded as like a point in space and you know it's an assemblage we look at this assemblage and you know we we consider where the stone tools came from but it's it's just looking you know in a, a centrifugal sort of um idea whereas um i don't know centripetal i mean um stuff is coming into the site whereas actually we need to be looking out from the site and um, where is that site connected to because uh, you know they didn't just stay in one place all the time but no. the i mean the footprints i, I love that one um i think it's it, the one you're talking about is uh le roselle um it's although it's um it's on sands it was a dune site but it was after you know the coast the the sea had retreated because it was a bit cooler. So it wasn't quite on a beach, um, although they might have been able to see it. I'm not quite sure how far out it was. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I love that because if you look at research on, on hunter-gatherers, what you'll see is children are quite often off on their own little missions, doing stuff with their peers. And that is how they spend a lot of the day. And that's how they learn. And they're not just playing, there's active foraging, these little, you know, groups of of kids off doing stuff, picking mushrooms, looking at plants, you know, they're there with younger teenagers and stuff, but even really tiny little kids are are there doing, you know, being part of the group. And so the, the, the possibility that we could see that kind of partitioning of experience of life as, as, you know, childhood actually being not our idea of childhood as a, a pre-adult stage, but just a stage through which you pass where your your experience of life looks different to how it does as an adult. And I love that we can actually see that because the, you know, the question of can we see childhood in, in the deep past is, is, you know, something people have got a lot more interested in over the, you know, the past decade or so, but it's still really hard to assess. And, you know, saying oh they there were tiny hand axes but you know there's always economic explanations for why a hand axe might be really small it could just be very resharpened down and you know so perhaps when once it's very small it might have been then used by a child but you know I think when you actually see like a gang of kids messing around in in the sand (laughs) you know that's really you, you you can understand what that would have looked like and sounded like, you know, and, you know, where the adults were probably having a bit of blissful peace. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, speak, jumping off of tiny hand axes and hand axes of all sizes. So Neanderthal 
tools were thought for a long time. The the toolkit of the Neanderthal was thought to be pretty simple and static, but that perception is changing really rapidly with evidence that's come out over the past few years. So what does what's the state of our knowledge right now on Neanderthal's ability to take raw materials and turn them into useful objects? Where we are now um, is, you know, it's light years away from the traditional typological understanding of stone tools as sort of objects that were made to look like a particular thing and then mm-hmm. used. The the shift in in how archaeologists actually deal with the material uh, took took decades really and it's it was only really sort of in the 1990s that a real focus on technology so how they made stuff not just what they did with it um and processing technology as a, a dynamic process that did not sort of end once you made a flake um, and the flake could then be, go through its own process of, of dynamism and transformation as it was carried and resharpened and then maybe used on something else. Um, so that was a really big shift. Um, and it also meant that people's understanding of tools, so that is flakes that have been retouched around the edge, our notion of, of those as being sort of artifacts that were made and immediately retouched into a scraper um, that shifted to a situation where we we think that a lot of objects were used straight away after they were napped off as a flake because it's super sharp and then the retouch is actually resharpening that edge that had dulled so it's it's much more of a, a complex process and then we once people sort of got really interested in from I guess from the 60s onwards people archaeologists really had to go at at sort of experimental napping and that really changed people's ideas as to what it looks like you know what is all the the totality of the stuff look like when you make a hand axe and what are you left with with all the other bits are they useful Um, and from that people also really got into refitting Um, and that has been together with with this technological mindset refitting and understanding of technology and stone as a as a variable raw material um that completely transformed the way that we approach um neanderthal lithics and, and their stone technology um and so once you have that understanding that all of the pieces that you produce when you create any object um they are informative um about how you did it basically. And once we knew that as archaeologists, we realised that we couldn't chuck away all the stuff that had been regarded as dross, <laughs> you know, um, waste. Um, yes, technically a lot of it is waste, but it's really useful for reconstructing the thought process behind how Neanderthals were making different objects. If you refit stuff back together, or if you just sort of look at the different technological properties of flakes that come off while you're making something else, it tells you loads. And that, together with a similar sort of reimagination of the usefulness of bone assemblages as well, sort of just random bits of bone. Um, we archaeologists really understood you couldn't, you know, be really selective about your material. You had to have almost like a total collection policy when you excavated. Um, and then once those two sort of things came together in the 90s and onwards, um, so about the last 30 years, the way excavations have been done has just, you know, been really, really really focused on amassing as much data in terms of the objects themselves but also their spatial relationships and that might be spatial relationships in on the micro scale where you have all the little flakes that went together when you're napping one single nodule of stone you refit those and that's its micro spatial history of, of one core and the flakes that come off but then you also have spatial relationships across a site where you can see how a neanderthal sat napped a core and then chose to move some of the flakes over to a different part of the site um, and then other ones somewhere else and they did something different and when you add to that there's also archaeological um, science uh, methods that have come in for example being able to look at used wear so the polishes and sort of the different um, abrasions that you see 
on stone tools when they're used on on varying raw materials we can we can assess those then that adds another layer of of information on exactly how they were using the tools and you take it back and say well are they choosing different technologies different objects for different things and when you put it all together it it shows absolutely um unequivocally that they were um completely skilled in the working of stone they understood the properties of different stones you know flint is one of the better napping stones because it fractures predictably and we see almost everywhere that they will um source or carry flint for longer distances because they know that but they won't take it to places um, where there's already good flint. You know, they're not, they're not moving coal to Newcastle, as you'd say, um, in this country. Um, and if you take that then beyond um, sort of just the kind of stone, but they are selecting bigger flakes to take with them on longer journeys because they expect to have to resharpen them. You know, so you start to see the level of um, understanding of materials, of a clear desire to get particular products as well from particular um, cores, you know, and they can change the technique midway through to get what they want if they encounter a problem. And then, you know, the the scheduling and and the expectations of being in other places uh, to do other things. You can see all of that when you analyse a particular assemblage and then compare that across different assemblages it's it's you know miles away from the idea that a um their technology was simple or unsophisticated and also we can see it changed over time um they for a long time neanderthals were positioned as sort of having a static culture that sort of you know oh they evolved they made lavalois you know, prepared core technology, that's their big flagship thing. And then they basically did nothing for hundreds of thousands of years. And the, we can see from big advances in how we date sites um, and, you know, the, the chronology is so much better than it used to be. Um, we can really see that there was diversity in, in what they did over time. Um, there were different uh, sort of phases when when particular technologies came in and went out. We don't quite know why or exactly what that means in terms of are the blades that we see in northern France um, around 100,000 years ago, um, is that like a blade culture? And then it disappears again around uh, 70,000 years ago. What happened to to those Neanderthals that made the blades? Did they just not need them anymore? Or does that represent the disappearance of an actual culture because they were then dealing with um, a really intense glacial period? Um, did that technology die with them? And, you know, it's it's really difficult on the scales we operate at to ask questions like that. But you can see that the patterning of what they did over time and space is way more rich than used to be thought, you know, decades ago. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. And it's not just stone tools, right? They had what's becoming clear is that there was this diversity of technical know-how for lots of different materials. And they were making composite tools. They were hafting things. It's anything that you see comparatively, you know, that humans are doing. It seems like Neanderthals may have been doing as well. Yeah, there's overall, there's very few areas where there isn't some sort of broad uh comparability so for example you know blades were always proposed to be the thing that separated us from neanderthals you know i'm talking like 20 30 years ago 
that's definitely not true. Uh, you know, we can see they made um, long blades at some points. Other points, they were making bladelets, little blades. Um, <laughs> as part, I know it's cute. <laughs> um, as part of other technical systems, um, like flake-based systems, but then they would have like a little sub um, sub technology where if their core got small, then they would take little bladelets off and stuff. So um, it's not that they couldn't make blades; they definitely could. It's I think it's more that most of the time they just didn't need them. Um, and also our thoughts about exactly what blades are good for has, has shifted somewhat too. Um, but in terms of the different sort of organic technologies that they had and how that compares to early Homo sapiens people, um, we had known for some time that there were very, very rare wooden spears um, the Clacton spear, which is older than Neanderthals, was found um, very early on. But um, I think the the key moment for understanding the sophistication of, of wood technologies was the Scherningen spears, uh, which were found in the mm-hmm. mid-1990s. And they are interesting because they they show clear understanding of the properties of the wood, not only the species of the wood, but the internal properties of different parts of the tree. Um, so these are really long spears. Um, they appear to be weighted like javelins rather than being spears that you would hold and thrust like a you know a big heavy sort of pike kind of spear. So not only are they more looking like throwing spears than not, um, but consistently there's there's multiple spears at this site. It's a lakeside uh, site where they were hunting horse. This is early Neanderthals, about 330,000 years ago. Um, and uh, we can see that they are using the basal parts of branches or, or trunks of these spruce and one pine uh, trees uh, for the tips of the spears because it's the most robust wood. Um, it's going to be the best. And not only that, they're also offsetting how they are um, carving the spears through um, the grain of the wood. It doesn't go directly along it. It sort of goes diagonally. And that's again because oh, that's, it would split. Exactly. It makes it more resistant. Ah. So we see that in those objects. And then completely different time period, much later in Southern Europe, there are um, digging sticks that have been found um, and they do the same thing. They have the offset thing again. So this sort of, I mean, it's not necessarily saying those those two things imply a direct cultural connection, but there is clearly a common understanding of material properties. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I use the word in the book and say they're not really far off carpentry skills, you know, that the level of understanding of, of how you work the wood. Um, and in, in the digging stick uh, cases, they also looks like they were using fire to help them uh, carve the wood because for those sites, they're using extremely the hardest wood available to them, which was boxwood, um, which takes hours to work because it's super dense. But it's exactly what you'd want for a digging stick, which you're bashing all the time into the ground. So we can see sort of this again, like with the stone, the level of um, interest and in, in quality and efficiency, you know, um, and what's. I think really interesting is when you come to the composite technology that you mentioned, which is, you know, just basically sticking things together, um, multiple part tools. Um, we can see that Neanderthal use of adhesives is really just as sophisticated as what we see in um, sort of African early Homo sapiens context is South, Southern African, really, where we have where we have the evidence for this. Um, there are recipes with multiple ingredients um, and we can see the same thing going on with Neanderthals. They are using birch bark to cook birch tar, which is not easy in itself. Although, you know, the, the concept of a material uh, transforming from bark into tar is, is quite interesting and implies mm-hmm. some level of experimentation. Um, but then in other sites, we, we find uh, that they were mixing different things together and a new discovery from Italy implies that they were using plant resins mixed with beeswax which was just like you know that's pretty jaw-dropping really and that takes that sort of technological sophistication to an equivalent level really um, to what was going on in southern Africa and I think the only in terms of their overall sort of the stuff that they did in with with technologies or weapons the only difference really that we can see is that they didn't seem to heat treat their stone um, as you see with mm-hmm. early homo sapiens 
um, because it can allow you, you know, to turn stone that's not so great and make it a bit more predictable in how it fractures. They don't, there's no evidence for them doing that, but maybe they didn't need to, um, depending on where they were. And we also have no evidence for, uh, or no clear evidence for them using like proper projectile weapons. So like darts or, um, or, or a bow and arrow. Bow and arrow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's, there's no certain evidence that that was going on. Um, so those, I mean, that can be a really significant technology, um, depending on how you use it. But overall, the similarities are definitely much more than the differences. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. Um, so my next question is something that um, I really think that our conversation today has given us several sort of glimpses into. And um, and certainly the the narrative and like the gorgeous prose of your book um, really oh, thank um, you <laughs> sort of, it is it's yeah, I know, yeah yeah that's not overstating it at all no. um but I would love to hear you tell us a little bit more about sort of the the sensory experience of the world of Neanderthals and so like what would that world feel like or smell like or sound like and um if if I were to be transported back to the back in time um might I recognize any parts of Neanderthal life as familiar? I think really most of the time Neanderthals would have had a sensory world that was very similar to recent and historic hunter-gatherer peoples because that's essentially the lifestyle that they had. Mm-hmm. Um, they would have been living in in small groups. Certainly we don't have evidence that they ever had like, you know, mass festivals or anything like that. Um, the, the groups would have been small, um, but we can see there was children around, children off doing their own thing. So you might have children's voices in the distance, you know, um, not necessarily talking, but screeching and laughing and doing their <laughs> thing off in the periphery of your hearing. Um, and I think you would have probably a fairly constant tang of smoke around and about, um, there have been some debates recently for particular contexts and, and times as to whether Neanderthals could actually make fire. I think, personally, I think they could. Um, but the certainty that, that they used fire everywhere, you know, we can definitely see fire was a central part of their life. And we can even see in some places what appear to be hearths that were intended to smolder you know, um, some places we can see that the temperatures of the fires was was really hot and they were blazing and presumably they were potentially cooking or, or doing some kind of treatment or it's about heat, um, you know, or, or maybe light, um, a blazing fire would be. But in other places, um, especially uh, some, place, some sites where we can see little hearths near the back of a rock shelter, it looks like they were smouldering. And so they could be night fires. So... I guess a Neanderthal evening, um, you know, there would be probably people doing a little bit of flint napping perhaps, but not too close to where you're sleeping. (laughs) Um, Oh, sharp. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And fires glowing, um, smoke around, um, but hopefully not too much in people's faces. Um, Probably a lot of fatty, rich smells around. Mm. Everything we see about what they were interested in, in in the animals that they were hunting. And they did take meat, obviously, but they were really into fat and marrow. Um, So I think there would be quite a a rich sort of gravy smell. (laughs) I guess gravy and and smoke. Butter. (laughs) Um, Sort of, yeah, spicy kind of smell um, from the wood smoke and juniper maybe in a cold time and and yeah a a sort of a gravy smell of of the food um most of the time I think I think it would have felt relatively homely in the places where they were bringing things back to but then you've got to remember that they were moving you know and what we know from all of the sites we look at it doesn't look like they ever stayed anywhere much more than a few weeks at most I would say um and so Home was, you know, wherever they were, they took home with them. Um, And so home might be out in the open air. And we have amazing one site, which, you know, seems to have post holes. And it's quite a big area, about 10 metres across. Um, 
and it seems that you know they were able to make their home there and it was very similar to what they did in enclosed spaces like rock shelters you have what seems to be a little sleeping area at the back with plant material possibly bedding and then fires further out so yeah you have a, a lovely reconstruction of that in your in yeah your book, it's gorgeous the um, la folie the site is called from france um so i think the the world that they knew their sensory world um <clears throat> especially their home world with hearths at the center of everything um not necessarily spatially the center of, of an entire site right. um but but the center of their activities in a site um they took that with them so the although the landscape might change as they moved around it um i think their experience of of what meant what home was um was mobile and it went with them that sounds nice That's, that sounds lovely <laughs> I'm sure it was also dreadful at particular times like like even during ice ages you know there's some quite fun climate reconstructions that shows around sort of 40 50,000 years ago um it was really cold in the winter and loads of snow all on the ground um but also the autumns were just like horrendously wet and soggy and you don't really think yeah. about Neanderthals as having to deal with torrential rain but yeah <laughs> they would have had to be Oof, if you're wearing and... <laughs> hides too Ugh. yeah exactly yeah. wet wet hide coat gross yeah our final two questions are one that we ask all of the guests who come on the show and maybe the hardest ones that we ask. But first one, what is either the best or your favorite thing about anthropology? OK, well, I did have a think about these questions um, in <laughs> advance because <laughs> they are tricky. But I, I mean, this one was was obvious to me. I think the best thing about when anthropology is at its best, so anthropology slash archaeology, um, mm-hmm. it's it's not only time travel but it's like mind travel it allows you to broaden your own understanding of what the possibilities are for being a human and whether that's homo sapiens or or neanderthals and i think you know a lot of very shady stuff has happened in the name of anthropology but those things have potential to be a force for good for example I personally think that a lot of my understanding of of gender and fluidity and being able to not be frightened of transgender people or um, non-binary people is because I understand as an anthropologist that is normal for humans. Um, and so I think it's it's an education about the potential range of different things that being human can mean. Um, and so I see that as as a force for good. Um, and so our last one, uh, if you could be, speaking of time travel, uh, in addition to mind travel, if you could be a fly on the wall for any moment in history or prehistory or any moment in the discipline of archaeology itself, what would you choose? Okay, I, I will cheat slightly because they are two <laughs> slightly different um, options. The, if I was going to go for a moment in archaeology, like, you know, in archaeology as a thing, I would go mm-hmm. for the first time somebody found a Neanderthal skull. And I'm not counting the ones that we know about. I want to know, like, the first time somebody encountered a Neanderthal remains and understood that they were different. Because the first time we we know that happened was actually really only 1856. There are two other times when have we know of before that, both in the 19th century, but nobody recognised what they were but I can't believe that there was not a time previously when some person hundreds thousands of years ago came across Neanderthal remains and understood that that was something unfamiliar Uh and what that meant yeah that that there was a hint of that so I'd like to kind of you know be a fly on the wall for for that whatever whenever and whatever happened and if I was going to go back in prehistory it's quite tempting to say I would like to see the first meeting between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals. But I, mm. when that happened, exactly, it, it, it's being pushed back further and further in time. So I'm not quite sure. Um, I think I would change what I, you know, I would have selected that. But I think I now would like to see what happened to explain why we have the remains of very young Neanderthal children in the record and pretty complete skeletons. Um, for me, they are combined with other evidence and they are some of the most important evidence for some kind of intentional treatment of the dead. And so I would like to 
see exactly what led to either the Mesmaskaya or the Le Moustier 2 babies um, being sort of left in the ground and to see what the social context of that was, what was happening, what was happening with the mother or the, or the parents and, you know, what led to those tiny little bodies being in the ground for us to find, you know, tens of millennia later. I would like to know what happened um, to those babies. Oh, yeah. We will accept both of those answers. (laughs) (laughs) Very generous. (laughs) Well, thank Becky. Gosh, thank you so much for, for all of this, for the mind travel and the time travel. (laughs) Would you like people to find you on social media and online? And if so, where can they do that? I'm pretty much only on Twitter. Um, So I am um, at Le Moustier uh, on Twitter. Um, Swooped in early and grabbed that one, huh? (laughs) It's because I didn't know what else to say. It was like years ago. (laughs) I don't know why I chose it. It's completely like, yeah, off the cuff decision. (laughs) It's not that the the French um, sort of archaeological site is wishing that it had, you know, the tourism board and not after it. I don't think so. (laughs) I think I'm all right. (laughs) But yeah, that's me. (laughs) So follow Le Moustier, L-E-M-O-U-S-T-I-E-R on Twitter and uh, your website is www.rebeccaragsykes.com, where people can find the full and exhaustive bibliography. It from might your need book. a little bit of extra formatting, I think. <laughs> I haven't quite finished it, but information about you and and all of that. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to plug? Um, yeah, um, the other work I do with Trailblazers. It's a project that was begun when I was doing my postdoc in France, actually, um, with three other women who were in an early sort of career stage. Um, and it's mm-hmm. it's a website, uh, travelblazers.com, um, all about uh, highlighting women's role in archaeology and the earth sciences, both past and present. So we have just like tons of mini biographies of women that you can discover. And uh, we are on Twitter too, as uh, at travelblazers. And yeah, we, we also take submissions if people come across uh, interesting women uh, that are not on our website that they would like to uh, write about. Yeah, Dorothy Garrett makes some cameo appearances in the book. Oh yeah, she has seen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're we're slowly we're slowly we're like you're it's like Pokemon. We're catching all the trailblazers slowly. Yes, exactly. Well, yeah, never we've, ending. <laughs> we've uh we've well we spoke with uh Brenna Hassett. Yes. Um and and that was delightful. And so we, we have two more. Yeah. Two more to go. <laughs> well, thank you again so much for coming on. And uh, listeners, thank you as always for listening. We'll be back in your ears soon with more content. And until then, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and anywhere else you like to listen. And of course, you can find... All of that, you can find our social media over on our website at thedirtpod.com. And we will have not only links to some of the content that we discussed today, but also a link to the book. (laughs) Which we encourage you to go get your little paws on as soon as possible. It's very good. And I should mention, it's beautifully illustrated by Alison Atkin, who is also a delightful follow on Twitter. Yes. And a very talented illustrator. That's just a very beautiful book. So thank you, everyone. We love you. Goodbye. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.